Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode. My guest this week says that motherhood is a journey that has the power to help us evolve and transform. And if you're listening to this podcast, then I know that that will resonate with you. Shelley Robinson is the founder of Raising Yourself. She was also suggested by tons of you when I asked who you wanted to hear on the podcast. Shelley is a holistic family wellness coach, a workshop facilitator and conscious parenting advocate. And she is on a mission to teach busy midlife mothers how to heal unhelpful patterns and then develop a strong emotional health that they can pass on to their children, which is something that we talk about every week on the podcast. So I know and I hope that you are going to love this episode. Here it is. Shelley, I'm so excited to chat to you. I discovered you on Instagram, been following you for a while. And, you know, we were just chatting, weren't we? There is so much overlap between what I'm passionate about and what I'm doing with Motherkind in the podcast and what you're doing with Raising Yourself. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into this. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I know when I saw the invitation to be on this podcast come through, I thought this is going to be such a great conversation. I cannot wait. <laughs> How did you come to do this work? What's been your path to being sat here this morning? Yeah, my work started out more in the area of I was coaching women. This was, gosh, a decade ago. I was coaching women who struggled with emotional eating. And I did this after I'd worked in corporate for 12 years. I had my first child. I was trying to market insurance. It was a snooze fest for me personally. Like it just, it wasn't work that lit me up. So I went back to school. I became certified as a life and wellness coach. And I got into the work of emotional eating because I had struggled with that for so many years. That's where my work in healing really started out. And I became really, really fascinated with how many parallels and connections there were between why and how moms struggled with this area of their life and also how it showed up in parenting. Because so many of the moms who I worked with thought something was wrong with them, that they were broken. There was a lot of shame. And then they kind of coped with that inner critic by using food. But then it showed up in their parenting a lot too. And so I just became really fascinated and really curious about where did this come from? We weren't born like this. We learned these voices, we picked them up somewhere. So I got really curious about how that showed up in our parenting and where that came from and how that got passed on from our ancestors. So I started out in that area, but I ended up in the more of the parenting area because I became a parent and I was really curious about my own behavior. And I was like, where did I get this from? You know, I just began studying it and immersing myself in it and supporting women around that area a little bit more. It's been a really interesting journey and one I would have never predicted, but 
I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. It's so funny because I too did 12 years exactly in corporate before really? I started. <laughs> yeah, I started doing my coach training and you'll never guess what I was doing. I was marketing insurance too. You're kidding. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. That's the path to uh, maybe better things. Who knows? Who knows? So, you know, when you started to do the deep healing work that I know you've done, what was the trigger for that? You talked about it actually being your second child. And yes. what did you uncover in yourself from that generational patterning that you're now kind of working on healing? So yes, I have two children. And when I had my daughter, who is now six, I think I saw a lot of myself in her. And so that's really when I began this kind of like journey on where did I learn my own patterns? Why am I so angry? All these questions that kind of bubbled up and everything I read and everything that I consumed pointed to look at your childhood. (laughs) And so I know as a mom, I became way more overwhelmed when I had two children and I had a lot of anger. And at that time, six years ago, I barely heard of the word trigger. The term inner child, I just really thought that was reserved for people like not me. You know, it just felt very distant and abstract and not relevant to me. But I think it was my anger that I got really curious about. And I'm like, I love my kids so much. Where is this mom rage coming from? And that's when I got really curious about that work of inner child healing and understanding those triggers, those emotional activators and where those come from and that they have a story to tell. And so I got really curious about what was behind that anger and behind those stories that my inner child was trying to bring to the surface and ask to be healed. What was your in a child asking to be healed? For me, it was, I think, not having a voice. And so when my children, you know, if they were defiant or they disagreed with me or things that kids are developmentally supposed to be doing, pushing the boundaries, right? I saw red and no one would believe that about me because I have kind of this like cool, kind demeanor and people like, surely you wouldn't get that angry. And I'm like, and I never did anything. Of course, I raised my voice every now and again, but it scared me. I'm like, where is this deep well of anger coming from? And I think that was the journey for me about kind of reclaiming my own voice so that I could give my children their voices. And of course, that doesn't mean letting kids be disrespectful or mean-spirited, but it was just about creating a space and an environment in my own household where everyone's voice was safe. And I had to start with myself first. I had to go back in time and kind of examine like, where did I lose my voice as a child? And how can I reclaim that so that I have it today and that I can use it for good and that there's not all of this resentment and anger underneath of that lost voice? How did you reclaim it? Oh boy. That's one of those questions that I wish there was like this really palatable Instagram quote I could give you, but it was just a journey. It was just a really long journey. Here's what I'll say. I think this is the easiest way to sum it up. When I looked back about where that anger was coming from and where I had lost my voice, I began questioning narratives that I assumed were true. And so I call it this game of like two truths and a lie. So I would point to a lie that I used to believe like, I don't belong. My voice isn't worthy. You know, things we all kind of pick up as children and these narratives that we pick up, my voice doesn't matter. And I would just question them and say, is that even true? 
Or could that be a lie? And then I would start overrating those lies with truths. Like I do belong. My voice does have a place in the world. And so just kind of making those subtle shifts and they weren't things I necessarily even shared with anyone, but just calling out the lies and overwriting them with truths that I knew as a grown adult who wasn't surviving anymore that I had to embody. Like intellectually, I knew my voice belonged, but like, did I really believe that? That was the gap I was trying to reconcile. I was trying to bridge between childhood and adult. And that's really the work of raising yourself is bridging that gap, reconciling those stories that we grow up believing about ourselves and then growing up and saying, where is that even coming from? (laughs) And it's not always from our parents. We can pick that up from any adult who had influence over our life, like coaches and pastors and teachers. And, you know, we pick that stuff up from a lot of different places as children. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? That, you know, our children come to us with this spirit and this energy and then they're kind of just fully themselves and they're loud and, you know, and if any part of us was, as you're describing, and I've got exactly the same experience, you know, not allowed to be our fullest, brightest, Mm -hmm. most angry, you know, children when they're allowed to, right? Are just kind of just all raw emotion. Mm -hmm. If that was shut down in us, of course we try and shut it down in them because it's so uncomfortable. That's right. It's painful, right? Yeah, so of course we're going to be like, don't disrespect me because I said so, all that sort of stuff. It's almost like when, you know, I remember before I started on this path and I would see women, peers even, who were just fully embodied and they would trigger the hell out of me and I would want to shut them down. It's exactly the same. It is. And it's so important. I think at least it was for me to realize that was my ego. So when I would be like aghast at my children's behavior, like, how dare you? The nerve, how dare you disrespect me? That wasn't necessarily me as a mom being mean and terrible. It was my ego. It was in the front seat because it was so fragile and it was being threatened. And so if we can look at our behavior with like an arm's distance like that and not make it about this is who I am, but really this is my ego. It's in the driver's seat right now. It makes it a lot less personal and it takes a lot of the shame out of it. And I think as humans, we all struggle with shame. But I think as moms, we really, really are good at shaming ourselves. And then that's exactly what kind of keeps us stuck in that cycle of repeating these patterns because we can't break free from those lies when we're affirming them with our shame. Let's talk about shame and the good girl. Yeah. Yes. So I think they're really, really connected. So can you tell us your insight on shame and Mm -hmm. the good girl and how both of those get triggered when we become parents? Oh, I love this question. So I think one of the things that's really harmful to kids and that I think so many in our generation grew up with is this binary of our behavior being good or bad. Either you're a good girl or you're a naughty girl. There was no nuance. And so we grow up if we're not good well, then we must be bad. And so that left no room for all of our feelings. So feelings like anger and impatience and all those things that come up being a parent, when we feel them, we are catapulted back in time to that narrative of like, you're bad because you're feeling all of these feelings. And so it's so hard to work through that as a parent when you're busy and you're overwhelmed and you're just trying to get your kid to eat dinner and you don't have time to like sit there and think about your inner child. You're just like, just eat the macaroni and cheese for the love. (laughs) 
that's what we have to unravel are those narratives that like uncomfortable, I'm going to put this in quotes, negative feelings are bad. And that equates us as being bad. And so many hard feelings come up as a mom. So we sit there and wallow in shame around them because we feel like they were never allowed and they shouldn't be allowed today. And then we unconsciously pass that to our child and we don't mean to, but if our feelings aren't allowed, why should their feelings be allowed? And so it's kind of overrating that belief that all feelings are okay and that doesn't make us a good or bad girl. And there's no shame in any of our feelings, which is why I'm so passionate about that whole conversation of give kids the space to feel all their feelings and breaking that shame cycle. But the good girl, bad girl thing that comes from so many different institutions in society. And I received a lot of that in the church growing up. And so that's a huge part of my journey. Yeah, that one could be a whole other podcast episode, but just how little girls are supposed to be and compliant and quiet and just nurturing and don't you dare have any anger. It comes from a lot of different places. But for me, that was a really big thing in like religious indoctrination growing up. Yeah, and I think anger is... It's so fascinating, isn't it? I never really experienced an anger like I did when I had kids, you know, and I'm Mm -hmm. exhausted and I'm stressed out and I'm like, just get your shoes on. And, you know, now I know that's totally fine. Of course I'm feeling angry. You know, I've got cortisol flooding in my body and there's stress. Mm -hmm. It's almost like biochemical. It's like it's totally fine. But what I used to do is then shame myself about the anger. You know, why am I so angry? What's wrong with me being angry? And then, you know, I do the same unwittingly to the kids like anger's not okay and I think for women in particular just got this message that it's not okay to be angry and yeah it's so cool like just telling myself first your anger's good and someone said to me once you know anger is the emotion of self-esteem it's kind of like if you're angry about something it's like this isn't okay for me there's kind of a right esteem in it as opposed to pushing it down, which we know, as you were describing, comes out sideways in emotional eating, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, physical illnesses. So yeah, I just think anger is so important to just normalize, isn't it? And yeah, bring into, it is. Bring into the normality of what it means to be human and particularly a parent. Right. And I think another aspect of anger that's not discussed as much as I would hope it would be is underneath that anger is almost always fear. And I think if we can look at it that way, we can be a little softer with ourselves and we can be a little softer with our children because we react differently toward fear than we do anger. But underneath anger is a fear of abandonment or rejection, shame. So anger, it's got like everything else, a story to tell. And usually when you start peeling back the layers of that anger, someone's afraid. And I use that. I've actually used an actual onion with my kids. If they've been angry, we don't do this in the moment, of course, but after they've been angry, we kind of take this onion and say, let's talk about, and they, it's such a cool, tangible way to kind of get them to understand like underneath of that, what was really going on. It's been a fun experience to kind of help them see like their anger doesn't make them bad. There was a story to tell there. And how do you pick apart the nuance? Because there's definitely some nuance when we talk about anger in particular you know you're describing at the start you know one of your big gateways into awakening was why am I angry all the time yeah and yet there's the kind of other side of it which is like anger's welcome 
So if someone's listening, thinking, well, hang on a minute, yeah, I feel really angry. And the minute ago you were saying that's good and it's okay to be angry, <laughs> but then at the start of the conversation, you're saying, actually, that was a gateway into what's really going on with me. Where's the nuance? Well, I think you can look at anger, you know, you can look at it with compassionate curiosity. That's how I view really any feeling that kind of bubbles up either for myself or my kids. Of course, that doesn't mean I do it perfectly, but if you can just be compassionately curious about where it's coming from and be able to sit with it and know that you can come out on the other side of it, it allows you to have a relationship with it instead of running away from it by using the coping mechanisms that we all use in some way, right? Whether it's food or scrolling or alcohol or whatever, but just to be able to sit with it and have a relationship with it, I think is really the most powerful gateway into integrating that part of yourself that might have been as suppressed as a child. I think that word curiosity is just the most powerful word with this work. I use it so often with myself. Like mm-hmm. I'll say to myself, isn't it interesting that triggered you? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I right. feel like it's so, right. it's so much softer than it is. You know, what's, what's wrong with you? Or isn't it interesting that you're questioning yourself? Or isn't it interesting you feel guilty about that? Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting? Dot dot dot. And I use it with yes. girls too. Yeah. There's no judgment there, is there? It's just an observation, like a, it's a compassionate observation, really. Like, what if I use the what if? Like, what if this has something to tell me? And you talk about breaking cycles, and it's something I talk about a lot yeah. as well. And I was really curious do you have a sense of what those cycles are? Like, do you name them? Like, we're breaking the cycle of shame, we're breaking the cycle of feelings not all being welcome. And how many cycles are you breaking? I know there's so many we could be breaking. And I think that's just a really personal question for each parent that goes on this journey. I actually just shared about this on social media and I said something like, you know, you're breaking generational cycles. And I kind of curated the most common responses I hear in my community. But I think once you start this work and maybe you start with one like that's really clear and obvious to you, like I'm not going to spank my kids because you were spanked and that's like an easy, low hanging fruit. Like I'm not doing that. But as you get further and further into that one, you're like, well, if I'm not going to spank my kids, that means I'm going to have to break the cycle of shame. And if I'm going to break the cycle of shame, I'm going to have to let my kids have a safe space for all their feelings. I feel like it cascades or it's almost like a domino effect. Like they all are interconnected. And I don't think there's really a whole lot of value into like worrying about labeling them or not. It's just more of a culture inside of your house, the environment that you want to create in your family. And by defining that first, by saying, I want this to be a safe place where all feelings are valued and given a safe space to exhale, defining that first, the other things kind of just fall to the wayside, the spanking and the shaming and the threatening and the invalidating, like those automatically don't line up with that value and that goal that you want to have for your house. Have you talked to your kind of extended family, siblings, parents? You know, the work that you're doing is quite public. Have you had that conversation or are you just kind of allowing it to be? And I wonder what they think of it. I've had, I would call them rather insignificant conversations about it. And my family, to be honest, it really isn't on social media, but we've had enough conversations over the years to know that we have different viewpoints about things. And that seems to be 
okay. Like that hasn't broken our relationships. And I, you know, I'm kind of going on my own journey and they're on theirs and it hasn't harmed us in any way, but I think we realize we're just very different people. And I've always felt a little bit like an outsider. You know, it's been interesting to see how that has manifested as an adult for myself. Like I've continued to just listen to my voice and use it in a way that I hope helps people and helps impact other families in a positive way. And how do you handle those interactions with your wider family, with your children? It's something I get asked all the time. People will say to me, you know, we try not to use the language good and bad in our home. And then my mm-hmm. kind of in-laws come and they're saying, good girl, bad girl, good girl, yeah. bad boy. Do you experience <clears throat> that? And how do we hold those boundaries or actually, well, maybe I'll share my view in a minute. Let yeah. Me so I think, and this is an opportunity in this reparenting, raising yourself journey to reclaim your voice. So if my parents or extended family member does something that is not in alignment with the values I have for my family, I say something to them. I set a boundary and say, we do not use that kind of labeling or we don't do the timeouts or whatever it is that they're doing maybe when they're caring for my child or around my child. So it's setting a clear boundary with them. And then it's setting a clear expectation with my children and saying, these are our values and I'm making sure I'm protecting you by not confusing you with getting mixed messages from family members. And it's okay to say something when someone crosses a boundary and violates like a value. So I'm holding boundaries in like two different places, one with my family and one with my children. And I think that's a really important thing as parents for us to model. And it gives children a template to follow to say, my mommy didn't like how that person treated me and I deserve to be stood up for. And what do you do when those boundaries aren't respected or listened to? There have been times where I've just cut off contact for an indefinite amount of time. I've definitely done that before. Those have eventually all been repaired and reconciled. But I think by doing that, it just sends the message of what you're allowing. It's a very black and white thing for me. That doesn't mean those things can't be discussed and resolved, but it's drawing a line in the sand of how you expect you to be treated and your children to be treated. I think it's such a big part of healing that good girl, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Kinda, it's okay. We're kind of kinda easy breezy and, you know, we go along with whatever's going on. And Yes. It's so uncomfortable. And I'm saying it like it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. I sweat a lot. I lose sleep over it. There's anxiety. It's that people pleaser. It's that wanting to be the good girl. And everyone likes me. I'm going to go with the flow. That's like the work when you become a parent. Like you get a chance to say, no, I am not going with the flow. I am saying this is the way it's going to be. I'm talking about this in the context of setting boundaries with relatives. And you stick to your guns. You know, you hold firm in that knowing that it's okay to hold your own boundaries. And it feels so uncomfortable the first few times you do it because that muscle is kind of like weak. If you haven't had the opportunity to use that, it's almost like atrophied. It's kind of waking up and the next day you're, I'm going probably too far with this analogy, but like you're sore and you're, <laughs> you're tired, but it feels like a workout that you've never really experienced. I think it gets easier and you become more comfortable in those situations. But man, at first... It's not a good time. (laughs) It can feel like you want to crawl out your skin. I mean, that's how it felt for me at times. Like, you know, I set the boundary and then just the the 
guilt that can yes. come with it of setting the boundary. And then I'll be like, is it a big deal? Uh-huh. Am, I make, am I making too big of a deal of this? You know, I start right. to question myself. Question yourself, yeah. But like you say, you know, that's because we didn't have that modelled and we didn't get a chance to practice it. And maybe, you know, when we tried to set those boundaries for ourselves as children, like, actually, I don't want to hug that uncle or go to that party yes. or wear that dress. You know, maybe those weren't respected. Right. So we find it hard to respect our own boundaries. It makes sense, doesn't it? Right. It all kind of goes back to that good girl, shame, you know, it's just overrating all of that. And our children kind of shine a light on those areas of our life that have yet to be kind of healed, that still are a little bit weak. Just by existing, they kind of shine that light on those wounds that still need to be healed. When there's an opportunity to to kind of stand up for them, that means using our voice with people that we want to please and that we don't want to be rejected by. So we're healing our inner child, we're healing ourselves as adults. It all kind of comes full circle. Yeah, it's so multi-dimensional. I often say like kind of this healing and this inner work as a parent is almost like on steroids. And even, you know, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, yeah. she said to me, she was like, I think it's unbelievable when parents choose to do this work because you are holding those two dynamics, well, three actually, you know, you kind of got yeah. the children ourselves mm-hmm. and doing that as we've just been describing and then we've got kind of our parents and family right. how do you care for yourself as you are doing this work you know as you said it's like physical work it can feel like you know running a marathon setting a new boundary or living by a new value it's yeah. hard going how do you care for yourself through it Doing this work has forced me to really figure out what brings me joy because it's heavy work and we cannot do it all day, every day, 24 seven, or we'll get burned out for sure. And we'll just give up. So we need some way to manage that energy. It can be depleting doing this work because it takes a lot of emotional energy. So we have to kind of balance that out with things that really make us come alive and that bring us joy. And as mothers, It's just so easy to put that on the back burner. But this work forced me to do that, to say, what do I even like to do so that I can kind of refuel myself because this work can be draining. So it just forced me to get really clear about what I need to recharge my batteries. And I know that can kind of sound cliche and like this whole self-care conversation, but doing things that really fill your soul, not just like surface level painting your toenails and taking bubble baths, but like what really brings you deep joy. And sometimes that's going back in time and saying, what did I like to do as a child? Did I like to color? Did I like to just be in nature and kind of revisiting that part of yourself that broke off when you became an adult because of all the obligations? What did you discover? Like, what do you do? The things I have to do to just keep my mental health on tap, I have to move my body. I am just a very like physical, I have to sweat. So some form of exercise or being outside walking and moving my body, it kind of resets me mentally. So I always find something to do to sweat every day. I love coloring. That is very calming for me. And that's something I used to do as a kid. So I have found myself coloring a lot as an adult. And being alone, I am definitely an introvert and I recharge my batteries just by shutting my door and saying, this is my time. And I don't think I realized how much I needed that until I became a parent. It was just discovering those things and 
feeling what felt good inside when I did them and then making those a priority and saying, this is what I need. And honestly, like by doing that with my kids and my husband, I said, this is what I need and I'm going to do it. They now do that for themselves. And if my kids need to be by themselves and shut their door, I honor that. And my kids do that a lot. I think they're probably a lot like me being introverted and they recharge by being alone with themselves. And so we all just kind of give ourselves that space when we need it. Most of the times, of course, sometimes my kids barge in and (laughs) mommy, let's play. But most of the times, like they know how to like figure out what resets them as well. And I think it's partly because I'm showing them what that looks like. You know, it links to values, doesn't it? Something that I know you, you talk about a lot. So how does values intersect with this work of kind of uncovering our true selves? I love the topic of values. So I think as adults, we inherit values that our parents passed on to us. And I know I did. So when I first had my child, I kind of assumed that I had the same values as my parents. It was just an unconscious kind of adoption of them. I didn't really think about it. But then as my child, so my first child was born 11 years ago, as he got older, I was like, wait, I'm not going to do things like that. And wait a minute, I have my own values. And it was getting really clear on defining what those look like for me as an individual and not adopting them just because they were passed down to me. And I think values can kind of sound like one of those, like, "Mm, what's the point? But really, like, there are so many values to choose from. And I think we deeply connect with them in ways that we don't really realize until we have kids. And like, we know what we're not going to do. So what are we going to do? What is important? Compassion, empathy, humor is a big one for me. I mean, they don't have to be all very deep, serious values. They can be adventure. And, you know, I'm in a homeschool co-op and we just got done defining our co-ops values. I see values like as ingredients that we need to make a successful family recipe or whatever it is you're trying to create. They're absolutely non-negotiables. Being clear about them also teaches people how to treat you. How did you go about getting clear on those values? You know, I think it was just a combination of working with different therapists and coaches over time. And it's really digging deep into what matters to you. And you can kind of think about like big events in your life. Like when was I the most happiest or what do I feel the most passionately about when it comes to like social justice? It's kind of about asking these big, deep questions and where you laid up and where you feel really strongly. There's not really a magic formula about how to do that other than just kind of noticing where you feel really strong and passionate about certain topics and noticing that and saying, okay, I care about that. And not just treating it like something, you know, that's unimportant, but really integrating that into your life and making decisions about life rooted in those values and those things that you care deeply about. Yeah. I do this awesome exercise, which is just as you described, like thinking about a time in, when you just felt totally alive yeah. What I've found over the years is that uh-huh. work, working with people is that those moments tend to feel amazing because they're yeah. living really true to their values. And mm-hmm. I think the opposite is true. Like sometimes, you know, if mothers are just feeling like just that hamster wheel, just kind of mm-hmm. disconnected and just going through the day, like often I've found that their value might be adventure, as you say, and they might have just been doing the same thing day yeah. in, day out for mm-hmm. years. It's like, no wonder you're feeling off and not alive because you're right you're not living in line with something that's really important to you 
you mentioned homeschooling and I just wanted to ask you a bit about that. When did sure. you start homeschooling? Did you go into formal education and then come out of it? Tell us a bit about your journey there and how it intersects with this work. We did start off in public school with my son, who's now 11. He went to school for two years and he didn't love it. I saw a lot of changes in him. He was coming home like a different person and it was it's hard to describe, but I just, as his mom, I kind of just knew something was off. And the more I got into this work about my values and how do I believe children should be treated and what helps my family thrive and my kids thrive, it just wasn't quite syncing up. And that's not to say sending your kids to school is good or bad. This is about discovering what your values are and then like syncing up with it. I always want to be really clear that education looks different for everyone. But this was one of the first opportunities in my journey to take that leap of faith and be like, I don't feel good about this and I'm going to honor that. And so we took him out of school and we've been doing that for three years. And my daughter's now a kindergartner, so she's been kind of on this ride with us. But that's been one of the most powerful and affirming ways for me to honor my values and his. I mean, this wasn't like a forced thing. I think they love it. They get a lot of autonomy and they get consent and they get their interests affirmed. And it's just something that I couldn't quite make work in the public school system for them. So it's been really interesting to kind of unpack that and see how much it does line up with the way my parenting philosophies. But it's uncomfortable because it's one of those, like I'm kind of an outsider in a lot of ways in my community. And there's a lot of homeschoolers where I live. So it's not, you know, but it's definitely one of those like conversations that comes up in play dates. Like, well, why do you do that? And <laughs> it's, it's a big answer, you know, there's just so much to it. And it's still one of those things I question a lot. It's also listening to my kids. So it's like a constant two-way street, you know, and if one of my children wanted to go back to school, we would have that conversation. And it's about giving them kind of a say in the matter. That's really what it all comes down to is giving them a voice. What are your hopes for them in terms of the outcomes of homeschooling? Because as you say, it's a big decision. I think it's always a big decision when we go against the norm. I want them to be able to listen to themselves, to be able to notice like what lights them up and following that and affirming that for them and kind of helping them trust themselves. Like if you're interested in something, I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader, even if I don't really get that thing. Like my son is into some things that I'm like, "Ah, I don't really get it, but I'm going to like get you all the resources, the materials and things you need to explore this. And I think so many of us as adults become disconnected from what we love and what we're naturally good at, what we're naturally just meant to be doing on this planet because we are asked to conform and comply. And I know that's kind of the nature of managing a large classroom of children. I know that that's hard to like let every kid go in a different direction, but that's what I love about homeschooling is the ability to say, you want to like study animals. Let's do that for however long we feel like doing that. Or you want to explore this or that. And it also is an environment, again, where feelings are safe. So if you're struggling with something, I'm not going to put a red mark on a clip chart because you're struggling and make you feel bad in front of other people, which happens a lot in the school system. We're going to sit down and work through it. So my hope is that they kind of listen to the inkling inside of like, what do I like? What lights me up? And then just giving them what they need to thrive inside of that. I sometimes think or laugh inside that if, you know, all children were 
taught that, I think the coaching industry wouldn't last very long. Oh, we would totally. You're right. Because that's what coaching is. That's what I do. You know, working with someone is like, let's just get you back to you. Get Mm -hmm. you back to you. And I feel like what you're saying is that actually what you're helping your children do is just minimize those opportunities when they're splitting off from themselves. Exactly. They're going to experience things in life where that's going to happen no matter what. But as parents, if we can minimize that for them as much as possible and just give them a lighter load to carry, I think that's the whole point. My six-year-old is in school, but homeschooling is something I would definitely consider. But I guess what stops me is that I want to work. And I can't quite figure out, probably because I've not researched it enough. So how do you make it work day to day? Because I know a lot of people listening will be really interested in that. Let's talk about this in a like outside of a pandemic. <laughs> because I'm gonna... It was such a horrendous experience for so yes. many people. I mean, it yes. wasn't homeschooling, right? It was emergency. No, schooling. right. I guess my point is I'm going to talk about this like outside of the pandemic because inside of it, I didn't have the childcare I needed or wanted. And I still am working on that, to be honest. I think, you know, assuming that things get better and things are a little bit more back to normal. It's really just being disciplined about schedules and when you're going to work and when you're going to do homeschool. And the beautiful thing about homeschooling is, number one, you don't have to do it all by yourself. So there are groups and co-ops and communities where you children can get some education from other people other than you. And also homeschool is way faster. It can be way faster than a six or seven hour day public school setting because you can just be a lot more efficient. So you can crank out your work in a couple of hours in the morning. And then maybe you have like a sitter or another tutor come over or someone else helping you like a support system to do the work and to do the homeschooling. You have to, you definitely have to have a support system and you cannot do it all by yourself. And I was doing a lot of it by myself during the pandemic, just because of the lack of childcare. And it slowed down a lot of my goals and plans that I had. So it's hard. And it was a good reminder that like, I absolutely cannot do this by myself. Like I cannot run a business and I cannot homeschool my children. I need other people. So that's why finding groups and other educators to help supplement that is so important and what allows it to happen really. That's so true. And it's something that I definitely need to just understand a bit more. I'm not there yet. Like, yeah, but I think just understanding a little bit more about what it would look like I think is going to be the first step for me and you talked about kind of your goals and dreams and I'm curious to know what's next for you oh man I'm still actually working that out and I really have been passionate about having a membership site for parents doing this work because I think it can be very lonely work and very isolating work and I am a huge community builder whether it's personally or professionally, like wherever I live, I love having neighbors together and I love having people together. And life is just better when you have others around you supporting you and rallying you and making you feel less alone. And I think an online community would be so powerful because I think while this conversation about reparenting and inner child work and the healing that we talk about is becoming more mainstream and more accessible, it can still feel very, very lonely. And so 
my goal, my longer term goal is to just provide a safe place for parents to have resources and to just share their struggles and to get support that they need to keep going because I think it's really easy to give up because it's hard. We're just dealing with like the logistics of parenting and getting our kids to school and putting food on the table. And then you're asking me to like open up wounds that from like 30 years ago, like I don't have time. So I just really want people to have the support system they need to just keep moving forward. Yeah, you're so right. And I often think about that, that, you know, it is a privilege to be mm-hmm. able to even think about in a child. Work. It is. Because if you're thinking about it, it means that you're not struggling to put food on the table and you're not in survival mode. That's right. It is a when privilege. When you're in survival mode, you can't do this work. You cannot. You and I think if we have that privilege, it's our obligation to pay that forward by supporting people who aren't maybe there yet with that privilege for whatever reason and just continuing to build awareness about this topic and making it more accessible so people don't feel like, oh, that's not for me. That's only for people who experience trauma with a big T. And really, we've all accumulated a thousand little paper cuts over our lifetime that warrant healing, whether it was from our parents, you know, whoever it came from. We all have those parts of ourselves that broke off that need to be reintegrated back into our lives so we can show up as the whole worthy human beings that we are in front of our children. Mm, That's beautiful. And I always ask the same question at the end, which Mm -hmm. is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would want to instill in mothers that it's okay to be gentle with yourself. Like I just want to reinvent the conversation of how we relate to ourselves And the word that always comes to mind is be gentle or the the phrase, I guess, being gentle. We're so hard on ourselves and it's so wrapped up in that like good girl shame, not wanting to rock the boat. What if we were just gentle? And every time I feel that shame bubbling up, I just kind of combat it with that. It's okay to be gentle with yourself. So important in that, particularly if... We didn't experience that growing up. It's incredibly healing to just yeah. be gentle with ourselves. Right. Oh, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was such a wonderful conversation. We had so much overlap and I love the work you're doing. Feelings very mutual. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on Instagram. Right. Sounds good. Thank you, Zoe. <laughs> So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different 
way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon. <laughs>